Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 61st episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Mary Beth Storjahan. Mary Beth is the founder of Workable Wealth, a financial planning firm in Southern California that in just its first four years has built more than $200,000 in recurring financial planning fees, serving a Gen X and Gen Y clientele with a combination of upfront planning and ongoing monthly retainer fees. What's unique about Mary Beth's practice, though, is the fact that she's built it over the past four years while also having two children who are now two and a half and three months old, respectively. In this episode, we talk in depth about Mary Beth's financial planning fee structure, the process she engages in to deliver financial planning value to her typically 30-something or 40-something clientele, why she rarely even uses traditional financial planning software at all for most of her clients, and the unique proactive process she has leveraging software to facilitate regular check-ins with clients and actually help ensure they follow through and implement all of their financial planning recommendations. We also talk about how Mary Beth built her own personal support system to help her launch her practice with a series of mastermind study groups she joined with peer financial advisors at similar business stages and an ongoing executive coach relationship to help keep her on task and be her own accountability partner. And be certain to listen to the end where Mary Beth shares how she managed to take time off to give birth to her two children without blowing up the relationship with her clients or losing her marketing and growth momentum, and her suggestions for how female advisors should think through the balancing act of when to start your own firm and when you also want to start a family. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Mary Beth Storjahan. Welcome, Mary Beth Sorjahan, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited to have you on the episode because I think we will get to talk about something today that, frankly, I feel a little remiss we haven't spent more time talking about on, on the podcast in, in the past, which is the, the very real-world challenge of running an advisory firm or starting your own advisory firm while you're also starting a family, which I'm, I'm cognizant is is particularly challenging for women because you literally are going to be carrying a baby and giving birth to a baby. And, you know, there's just, there's just uh, we can spend a little bit more time in the businesses, the husbands, if we have to, to manage some stuff. But if you're literally out of commission delivering a baby, you're really not going to be returning client phone calls for a few days. And I know, you know, you started your firm five years ago, you've had two little ones over that time period. And so, I think a lot of people are just really curious to hear what your either tips and best practices are about how to do this, or I know having gone through this because we have three little ones ourselves, you know, maybe just sheer survival tips is okay as well, but <laughs> yeah. how do you do that? So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about that. But I think just as a starting point to frame the conversation a little bit for everyone, can you just talk a little bit about your advisory firm, Workable Wealth. Like, I, what do you do, and who do you do it for as a as a financial planner? Sure. So, uh, Workable Wealth is a virtual financial planning firm. I'm based in San Diego, California, and I have clients all over the country. 
I launched in August of 2013. I think I brought my first client on actually though, like you know, December 2013-ish. And when I launched, I it was... It takes a little while. Yeah, it takes, takes a little bit. And when I launched, I was focused solely on you know Gen Y millennials. That was kind of like the hot thing at the time. And that's still who a big portion of who I work with. But it's evolved over time. So what most of my clients now I work with are in their late 20s to I'd probably say like mid to late 40s. I have some in their 50s as well. I work with... The subset I would say would be professional and entrepreneurial women. I work with military families and then just like young families who are, you know, little ones at home. Very much I work with myself as a client, you know, those who are, you know, having their own businesses, they have little kids. I was a, a former military spouse. So that kind of, it was kind of just like those are natural groups that I geared towards. So you work with professional entrepreneurial women in military families because you are a professional entrepreneurial woman in a military family. Yes, former. Yeah, so I'm just knowing that I spoke right? the language. Yeah, where it worked, and it was kind of it just kind of evolved that way over time. But uh, what I do with them is I do just your your typical comprehensive financial planning. I do an, a full on upfront plan, and I get paid a flat fee. It's I charge an up t- upfront fee, and then I get paid a monthly retainer going forward. So that new trendy model that we're all doing these days, and I do business financial planning as well. So, so what are those what are those fees look like? So you know, you said you're you're working with Gen Y folks, like, well, I guess Gen X and Gen Y, right? Like late 20s into your late 40s, early 50s, which is which is kind of the cusp for the tail end of Gen X. So what can people like that actually pay for financial planning if you're just charging upfront, upfront fees and then ongoing monthly fees? So the practice has evolved a bit and where I started was much lower. But now my minimum fees are $1,500 upfront and $250 a month. That was kind of where my, my low end... If they're just like starting out basic baseline, anybody who's an entrepreneur is at least a minimum of nineteen ninety nine up front and three hundred a month. Although I'm bringing on clients at higher than that right now. So I mean three fifty, four hundred, five thousand dollar annual retainers. Seven I just signed on one for seventy five hundred for an annual retainer. And then, you know, realistically I it ebbs and flows. And so the, I built the practice to where Sometimes, depending on the client, you know, we, we get creative. I won't do an upfront fee knowing that they're going to be a bigger annual retainer and there's going to be a lot of that work throughout the year. So, but minimum, I'm looking for a $3,000 low end annual retainer. Ideally, though, now that I have two little ones at home and um, I'm in the mindset of increasing that even more. <laughs> we'll say. Okay. So, but that's kind of your line uh, in the sand. I'd say 30, now is that's kind of the like line. 000. Yeah, the line in the sand right now. So, I got to ask, like you said, you. This has moved up. Where did you start? Like, how is how has this evolved for you over time? I think I brought it up for you because I wanted to make sure I could talk about this. Okay, so I, w- I won't even lie. The first, and granted, I launched Workable Wealth after I had ten years in the industry of experience, and I was still a little bit like, oh, do you know, people are going to pay me, and what am I doing with this model? I brought on my first three clients at two fifty upfront and a seventy five dollar a month retainer. Those were three clients, and quickly realized. Two fifty upfront and seventy five dollars per month. So if we if we go through the like a full year cycle with the client, you were going to do about a thousand dollars of revenue per client. Yes, and that was a full on Gen Y clientele, like just baseline, just getting started in terms of like getting organized and stuff. Very basic situations, and I, I quickly realized that I do know what I'm doing and I am good at what I do. And so <laughs> I increased my fees from there. I need it. And I always tell that now to people as well. Like if you're just getting started, you can do those three, those, you know, cap it, whatever your limit is, the three to get, you know, just to give yourself the confidence and to kind of get yourself organized and make sure that you are qualified and know what you're doing. And then you must increase it from there because it's not sustainable to obviously do that. 
Yeah, I mean, at a minimum, I, I know a few advisors that have that have kind of built businesses around those levels in, you know, frankly, like Midwest parts of the country where you know having sixty or seventy clients like that and 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 bringing in seventy thousand dollars a year like is actually a very good income and and works. You know, I know you're you're in Southern California, you're down by San Diego, so a little bit harder to raise two children on you know sixty or seventy thousand gross out there. Exactly, slightly. So, so the the upfront fee bumped up, and um, the monthly re- fees have upped, upped from there as well. And that was when I launched. Though I was not doing any type of investment management, and I think we've talked about this before. But I, I was just baseline doing only financial planning retainers. So I got to ask the uh, the original three have Have you allowed them to keep paying their seventy five dollars a month, or did you move them up as well? No, I moved them up as well. <laughs> they have been moved. Okay. Yeah. So I got to ask, like, how did that? How did that conversation go? Because I feel like for a lot of advisors, particularly when they start, there's this like that they they took a chance on me, so I I have to honor that fee forever and give it to them for life. Like, how do you break the news to them that like, hey, thanks for starting with me, but you know now that we're going, I'm I'm charging a lot more. Yeah, so I Obviously, will say you don't literally say it that way, but how do you So one of them I will say I bumped so she was my very first client. She started at $75 and I increased her I think to $100 a month. And then I and then we started with I was using using Betterment so we started investing some of her money. And we actually so there was that and she still what you know and then I'm doing a round of fee increases right now. So that was a little bit easier, right? It was $25 a month and, and mind you she's an attorney uh, brings in a decent amount of money and it's also sitting that she's single professional sitting on a bunch of, you know, cash. And so we bumped it up a while. I think I can't remember when I bumped her up to a, to 100 to be honest. It was it was probably a while ago cuz she's still my lowest paying client. So just recently actually, probably a week or two ago, we just had the conversation again where I said, "Hey, look, you know, going into the new year, I'm I'm basically refining my whole practice. There's certain clients I love working with. I provide a ton more value. I'm doing investment management. It's going to be flat fee. We'll because um, basically she was paying the flat financial planning fee, and then we had her on the Betterment platform. Basically said like we're going to do one fee all in. I'm going to right now percentage of income and net worth model. So I basically I just bumped her fee up and I said I hope you provided you've obtained a lot of value from our time together. Here's how your net worth has grown. Here's all that we've been able to accomplish. You've gotten an amazing deal, but unfortunately, it's no longer sustainable. We're up- upping her fee to $3,600 a year. And she said, that makes a lot of sense. And she signed the contract, set up her payment already. So she's still... Did, she, I basically said it was like... Scary, scary to have that conversation. It, um, it, not anymore, I will say, because where I'm at right now and the clients that I'm bringing on right now um, and where things are at, I can afford to lose. You know, I would be disappointed because I, I love my clients at this point and I really like the relationships that I built with them as well. That was something that I was probably the most insecure about when I started was how am I going to build these relationships and what will that be like? So I think I wasn't scared because and also, you know, with the, with the level of clients I'm bringing on now, as sad as I would be to lose that relationship... I mean, one client can account for like two or three of these ones that I'm just about to, I'm having the conversations with this year. So I'm not as nervous about it, actually. Well, I find that's one of the sort of the hard kind of business math realities of going through fee increases. You know, if you have to go through a world or like you're, whatever, you're, you're taking a client that, uh, that was paying you $1,500 a year and you're setting some new minimum fee at $3,000 a year because that's, that's where you're doing your new business, you know. Technically, if, if you go to all your clients and you do that fee increase and half of them say, forget it, then I'm leaving, you actually just improved your business because you are now going to make the same amount of revenue, twice as much from half as many clients, 
and you have half the work to do because half of the people just left. Like it, it's sort of a harsh thing, but you know, often the the one of the most powerful things you can do to just lift the profitability and effectiveness of the business is putting uh you know l- lifting your fees or lifting your minimum fees and and recognizing like you could actually lose a lot of existing clients and end out with a healthier business. Exactly. And I will say having our second child, I'm actually excited to go into this year and to be able to do this. I mean, I like I said I love all of my clients and I and there's a few who I'm working with a coach and she's like, what's your minimum? What's your hard line that you're going to do on these fee increases? Because there's some who I know won't be able to pay my minimum and I'll be sad to see them go. Yeah. But so here are you going to have your exception list and how many exceptions well, are you going to take? That's where and- it starts to get gray though, right? When you start to do that. You, and so it's it's hard because it's still... Time is the most important thing to me right now, especially having two little ones at home. And that's what I have to keep remembering is I also would like to be present for my children as they're growing up. And in the way that I do run my practice is very, it's high touch. That's just what I choose to do. And that's how my clients are. And so it's going to require a, a higher price point at this point in time. And so while I I look at it that way, you know, what what am I giving up? I'm, and we're, I'm at the point where I'm not, my revenue is at a point where it's comfortable. You know, I, I'm able to start making these changes now. And so there's I did have one conversation recently. She hasn't signed the contract yet, I'll be completely honest. And I was a little bit scared about that because she signed on at 3600 in August of last year. And she had um, a big IRA. Uh, not big. She had a few hundred thousand in an IRA. And we did financial planning. And I hadn't geared up yet. I was getting onboarded at TDA. And so we're transferring everything over, doing DFA, all that fun stuff. And she was one who which we'll talk about through my maternity leave, she was getting a new job. So she was unemployed when I signed her on. We quoted her $3,600. She's since gotten a job. She's making $200,000 a year. We're now looking at stock options and other things. And and yeah. And so um, I've had, I had the conversation with my study group of, do I go back to her right now and increase the fee? Because this is obviously a lot more work than what we quoted originally. And, and you know... Yeah, the, yeah your, your circumstance kind of changed from when this originally was set up. Exactly. And so we had that conversation last week and she said, you know, she, she was a little hesitant and she's like, can you know, can she even said, she's like, I shouldn't be asking my financial planner this, but can I afford you? And I was like, well, uh, I was like, based on the complexity, here's where you signed on. Here's what we're doing to add value. And I was like, we still have to look at your new cash flow with your new job. And I said, you know, if there's an issue, we'll, we'll reevaluate, but this is the new fee. And I said, I hope you've seen the value. And she said, I really have. So I sent her the contract and she agreed. So I am still waiting for the signature. I'll be totally <laughs> transparent. But that was something where, again, I could have, I could have just, you know, what fallen on the sword and 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 given the time, but um, again, I'm trying to be really impactful with what I'm doing right now. Well, and and it seems like there's just this crossover point that you know you said you you've reached where you know you're you're comfortable. There's enough revenue there that you just there's. I was going to say there's a luxury in the business, but luxury is probably not not the right word. But like there's the just there's a point in the business where. You know, if you know what you need to get out of the business to make your household and your lifestyle work, right? Like just like you, you, I've got enough money to pay my bills. I'm, I'm no longer just feeling the pressure to get more clients and more revenue to make sure I can pay my bills. You, you get to the point where you can afford to be choosier in the business and 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 saying like, okay, well, I, I can I can only work with so many clients because then I just hit my personal capacity. So if you've only got seventy five or a hundred client slots or fewer or whatever your number is, like. Who are you going to fill into those slots and do all of those people pay you what your time is worth? It's hard to take those risks until you get to that point where you're no longer just feeling the pressure of, I don't have enough revenue to pay my bills. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I, you know, after 
after this time, I've, I've gotten to that point. And even then, it's still hard, though, right? Even like as financial planners, we're in the cash flow. And I don't know how many, I'm sure, listeners all the time are looking at the spreadsheets and the P&Ls. And sometimes it's even hard to get rid of those ones who you're not making any money off of just because you like to see the number there. You just like to see that number. And you know you're actually probably making minimum wage on the other side. But you just keep it there because it looks good on paper. So is it like, how have you worked through that since... You seem to have managed to put through fee increases for pretty much all the clients. You've you've made that transition. Is there some like mental trick that you put yourself through to get comfortable actually doing that? I lean on. So I've always been big on having study groups. So I lean on my peers a lot in terms of bouncing ideas off of. It's like I said with this client just recently. I emailed them first, like, "What would you do?" And you know, fourteen hundred dollars. We're not talking a huge amount of money here, but obviously it was a tough conversation because she's a newer client, and it's not like you know hundreds of thousands. But when you're having these conversations over and over again, it's something that now with the study group that I'm in, a mastermind group we're in similar points in our businesses. So we're constantly bouncing around ideas of like, okay, how do you address this? And and cheering each other on a bit too of like, you are worth this, this, you know, recapping the value that each of us provides to the to the clients and leaning on them. I'm constantly looking at the numbers in terms of, okay, what have I gotten to the price point and what services do I provide my clients and who are who are the ones that I enjoy working with the most? Who makes me happy? You know, who do I walk away from the client meetings feeling really excited or energized um, to be working with? And those are those are the things that motivate me. And I also have a coach who kind of helped me to figure out like the thing. You've gotten in a really, a really amazing deal so far. And she gave me a great analogy recently. I think it was if you took your car in for an oil change and they found out that there was something wrong with the engine, would they still charge you for an oil change? No. They would charge you, you know, what it costs to fix the engine. So why would I still keep the same price from, you know, somebody who signed on at one rate, even though the, the situation ended up being much more complex, which I thought was a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like that analogy. So you've mentioned both mastermind group, a coach. So can you talk a little bit more about the, that structure? Like where did your mastermind group study group, like where, where did this come from? How did you find it? What do you do with these folks aside from, you know, bringing them weird client situations where people have changed their circumstances and try to figure out whether you should change your fee uh, after you quoted them one originally. So we're like, where did this, where did this come from? So when I launched my practice, I think I reached out to you back in 2013 before I launched. And when I was getting ready to go, uh, to go on my own, I think you put me in contact with Alan, Alan Moore. And then um, I met Sophia Bear uh, and Eric Roberge at a, Oh my gosh, next gen, next gen gathering. And so that was actually the first time I was ever introduced to like what a mastermind or a study group was. And the the four of us and a couple of others, we were actually in a study group probably for like a couple of years when we first launched. And that was very helpful in terms of getting us through the initial launch phase of, okay, how do we keep ourselves going? What are we doing? How are we pricing? You know, evolving things from there. And then, you know, even I remember Alan talking about, you know, XYPN and my living room floor when we got together for our first meetup and stuff like that. So kind of just idea yes. sharing. Yeah. And, um, so that was really cool at the time. And that group kind of it served its purpose, right? So that one served its purpose. So that, again, study groups don't have to always be forever. It served its purpose. We kind of disbanded. And one of the things that I was looking for in the industry was um, at the time, you know, I was obviously media exposure has been something that's good. Like marketing wise, that's something that's come naturally to me. I really wanted to find some, some a group that I could do like best practices, like organizations, process. Let's dig in there. Those were the things that I felt were a little bit, everything was working, but I wanted to really have some like some structure behind the place more than I always say, like get the butts in the seats first, then worry about everything else. Um, get people paying you. And then, you know, could you, otherwise you get stalled out. So I reached out to, um, how did I, 
Scott Frank reached out to me, I think, before he launched his firm. And he and I, he's based out of San Diego as well. So he and I actually started doing a like monthly lunch, basically. And somewhere along the way, I mentioned, you know, that I was looking for another group, but those who were more experienced, who had been in their on their own practice for a few years, not those who were just starting out. And uh, he basically looped me in with the group he had going. And so far, um, there are five or six of us in that group now, and we meet every Tuesday for an hour. And that's kind of evolved. Sometimes it was two hours for a bit. It was every other week. Now it's every week for an hour. Meet every Tuesday for an hour. Like that's a hefty commitment. So like, what do you, what do you do for an hour every Tuesday? So it really varies what we talk about. Um, sometimes we'll talk about, you know, in, you know, portfolio structure. Sometimes we'll talk about fee increases. Sometimes we'll dig into like specific financial planning topics. You know, how do you do a life insurance analysis for your clients? It's really just, it's really process driven. Um, we kind of have some Sometimes have like a loose formal agenda, but really it's just about like anything and everything. Sometimes you know it gets it gets to a point. Sometimes we're like, well, sometimes we get to you start showing up and you're like, okay, what are we really you know doing here? But then we'll usually within a week or two get back on track. And so it's kind of like when you work for yourself, there's a little bit of like the water cooler chit chat, but for the most part, we're we're really like helping each other through struggles in terms of like, okay, we even do like sales script practice. I think I mentioned offline that a group of us are being mentored right now by JD at Abacus. And so that's our group right now is, is going. JD, um, JD Bruce at, at Abacus. JD Bruce at Abacus is mentoring a group of us right now. And we go up there, I think, once a quarter. We meet, we, we get, get, get together with him. And so in between there, we're working on homework in terms of, you know, homework, quote unquote, you know, refining core values, yeah, yeah. refining like marketing, um, you know, same thing with like mo- reviewing models, reviewing goals for ourselves. So we really come together to hold each other accountable on that. And with the new year starting, we just review what our goals were for the year for each of us. And we kind of call each other out also, you know, if somebody's getting, we all get in our own ways. So it's, we lean on each other to help each other get out of the way. So, you know, if somebody's talking about, you know, doing a website revamp, for example, and they're not getting anywhere in the marketing or they're getting in their own way with content, we're like outsource it, you know, stuff like that of, you know, kind of lifting each other up. But we we uh, rely on each other for a lot of things like that, or even just, you know, random one-off questions about like, yeah, hey, which investment do you use for this? Or what are you telling? <laughs> Bitcoin, that was one that went around our group too. What are you telling your clients about that? So we just like, so it's kind of like anything and everything, but it's also this group has been together for a bit now. So we also talk about, you know, personal things like I'm, you know, I went through a prepping for maternity leave and having a baby this past time. I joined the group before Anjali had her baby. And so she went through a maternity leave as well. So prepping for those kind of transitions and talking through the balance of it all. So for folks that are out there that are listeners and thinking like, yeah, I would, I would love a group where I can bounce these kinds of things off people as well. Like, how do you suggest someone finds a study group or like get, gets this together if they want to get a similar peer group? Honestly, I feel like the, the best thing that you can do if you want a similar peer group is take initiative and send emails out to those people who you'd want to be in a peer group with. Get a great pitch together, put the structure in place for how you'd want the meetings to be run, what you could, you know, sharing wins, have a loose agenda, and reach out to people directly. Like do your research and, put, and try to pull together people. And if they're not interested, ask them if they have anybody else in mind who would be. I think the, the problem is so many people wait for the opportunity to knock on their door as opposed to going out and trying to pursue something and build it themselves. That makes sense. So. And that's, I mean, that's the best thing that you can do. I mean, no matter the industry you're in realistically, but I've, I've been in 
and so the, for me, the big thing is I have, I've had this study group and mastermind, but I've also been in, in study groups or masterminds that have not been in this industry. I've been in one with online entrepreneurs only. I've been in one with female business owners and that female business owners one was great because those are potential clients, you know, in terms of me being able to pick their brains. So there's lots of different ways that you can leverage groups like this. But basically this comes down to, you know, if you want to be in a study group with half a dozen similar peers, find five and email them and ask them to be in a group with you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, realistically, I, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you can obviously go to like something like Napa, like FPA, like XYPN. There's groups on there. I don't I know that you guys put together um, groups as well. I mean, I think I think they're built in for for you. There's there's resources like you who do it for you. But if yes, if you're like feeling at a loss for something and you're not leveraging networks like that already, then the best thing that you can do is is reach out to people directly. And and that's how I mean, that's really how I got my start with building my own firm anyways, was I reached out to you who you said, reach out to Alan, I reached out to Alan, and then I met Sophia. And then we, you know, and then we pulled in there. And so it all kind of evolved from there. But I and think off it went. Yeah. And which is I feel like if you're trying to build your own practice, it's kind of necessary to be able to put yourself out there and face rejection even by your peers. Unfortunately, yeah, it's kind of an essential requirement for the business building process. Yes. So then you also mentioned having a, a coach. Is, is this like a like an executive coach style relationship? Yes. So what does that look like? That looks like I'm currently leveraging the XYPN coach. So are we going into details? I'm using, uh, I don't know if you wanted to know. Okay, yeah. Um, I don't, I don't mind talking about it. I use uh, so I use Arlene right now. So I'm a member of XYPN. I'm using Arlene as my coach right now. And I reached out to her while I was pregnant. So I think probably three or four months before I went on my leave, maybe even a little bit less, really to kind of help again, like prioritizing my focus and not feeling like I'm trying to juggle all of the things and, and you know, being a mom and business owner and all of that stuff. So prioritizing where I'm focusing and making the most impact and ensuring that I can have some sort of work-life balance and just holding myself accountable to that as well. So right now it looks like we do two calls a month and we have I have a, a pre-call form that I fill out. And this last one, I'm about a month into, I think three, three, my month back into work right now, maybe three weeks back into work. And I'm brain dumped in the last one. I called it, I called it quote unquote word vomit. But I just, I said, here's all of the things that are going on that I need help prioritizing. And so we, we had our call last week and she was like, okay, let's run down the list. Let's do yes, no, maybe. And what do you need to do? What do you, what's, in, what, you know, what do you need to, need to cross off your plate and get it off? And so it was just nice to have that conversation and, and having that accountability partner as well. I love, she sends me emails afterwards like here's your to-do and literally my my email list is my to-do list and so i just love having it there in my inbox of like okay you have to be held accountable to this you're going to get it done before you know your next call you have to you have to make that email out of your out of your mailbox right like (laughs) yeah got to check that email off (laughs) exactly i'm gonna cross it off my list basically yes that's how that's how i look at it but um and i've seen you know i feel really good about the progress that i've made and some of the decisions that i've made as well just to kind of like give myself space and breathe. Again, that's also talking through like things like the fee increases or where I want to focus my time, my energy has helped me to figure out, okay, team building and processes and what do I leverage? What do I put on the back burner? Uh, what's, you know, not necessary at this point in time. So I feel like that's that's quite a overall commitment that just you know, you you've got a you've got a a study group that's meeting an hour a week, you've got a coach that's uh, an uh I guess you said uh, twice a month. So for you, like, is that hard time to to find? Like, I, I feel like for a lot of uh, folks, we said like, yeah, just start taking an extra hour or two a week to work on this stuff. Most people are like, yeah, I don't, I don't have an hour or two a week. <laughs> I'm kind of busy already. Like, how how do you set 
time for that much stuff on top of clients you serve, growing business, two little children and and family? Like, how are you managing that? I'm not even lying. The hardest time it is for me to find right now is time to go to the gym. <laughs> be totally honest on that part. Uh, but in terms of my mastermind and the coach, I mean, it's just those are standing appointments. Those are those are non negotiables for me. That's basically what that is. Um, sometimes, obviously, the mastermind, uh, I'll miss it for you know family vacations or other things. But those are my standing recurring things. I actually with Arlene, what happens? I actually start earlier in the day, so she's a seven thirty call for me in the morning, um, which I balance. Like, my husband knows the commitment there in terms of like, childcare because our daughter doesn't go to preschool until about 7.45. And so it's like managing the two right now. But that's a standing commitment that I make because I see the benefit that it plays in my business. Like I'm very grateful to have both of those in my life and I see the impact and the payoff. So even though like the schedule, my schedule is jam-packed. Tuesdays, my Tuesday tomorrow starts at 7.30 with Arlene and it goes until 5.30, 6 o'clock tomorrow night just with meetings. Um, so yes, Tuesday, it can be a little bit more stressful, but those are things that that I uh, enjoy and that I need. So otherwise, I feel like with without my mastermind or my study group, it's very easy just to get heads down, do the work. But I, I really like to stay like that's where I kind of stay involved with other people's lives. And and that's kind of where I learn my best practices and, and kind of grow together. So I, we, I miss being in a firm because of that water cooler talk a little bit, you know, you have those interpersonal um, in a bigger firm, I should say. Um, so I, I get that from there. So once a week, I give myself that hour because it's actually also reducing to to cheer other people on or to have them cheer me on or to you know kind of be bummed about something. You know, I mean, it's them. an interesting thing when you're when you're out on your own. For everybody that goes out and launches their own firm, that just it is very isolating. You know, it, it took me a while to adjust to it as well when I went from you know, being full time internally at our advisory firm to spending more of my time writing and speaking. And then I was working from home a little bit more. And you know, I had no thought up front to just the shift in dynamics of what it's like to be working from home. And like, oh, yeah, all those people, like you want to take a quick break and just go chat down the hallway with, with a colleague? Like you can't do that <laughs> in an office with them anymore. Uh, and yeah. you're just like finding – I had never given much thought to making sure I had just a peer group outlet uh, – until I went out on my own and realized like, oh, I need a peer group outlet. <laughs> uh, uh, otherwise, it gets, it gets really isolating. At, at best, it gets isolating. At worst, I think like we, we get stuck in our heads and then we start making bad business decisions because no one's there just to call us on. Exactly. So you, know, you said you've got this framework where you're now trying to do about $3,000 of, of – Revenue per client because you've, you've you know lifted up the early ones and you're charging new folks uh, uh, even more. So, what does this practice look like overall now? Like how many how many clients are under the umbrella? You know what like what does revenue add up for you uh, in the business? You said like you're you're doing planning these fees, not AUM. So I, I guess we can't just say like what's your AUM and do the one percent math to. Uh, so I have about 60 clients, uh, maybe 60, yeah, about a little, a little over 60 clients. And my revenue is um, about 195000 new coming in um, with the fee increases that I'm slated to go through here, probably in the next, you know, four to five months, there's potential to probably add another 50000 um, give or take. And that's just, again... Um, yeah, so that's yeah over those sixty clients, and then um, that's that. That's just the, the practice arm, and then there's the you know writing, speaking, all of that other stuff goes in an um, income stream. Okay, 
But last year, I think I closed 2017, I made 205,000 all in. Okay. You know, looking forward this year at like 240 to 250 in the practice plus writing and speaking revenue, like this is still growing pretty rapidly for you. Oh, yeah. That's with new, yeah, with new client, with the adding on, I should probably be able to bump up just from recurring clients, the 40. I'm hoping for like about 40, probably what I uh, what I would add, and then with new clients on top of that. So I'm hoping to yeah probably close somewhere between 250 to 300 recurring revenue, and then plus all of the other income. It's a heck of a model for serving Gen X and Gen Y folks that most people still say don't have any money to pay a financial planner. Like that's a it's a heck of a, a business that you build in in five years out of the gate. Did you because you said you worked at an another planning firm previously? Like did you get to bring a bunch of clients with you to to get started or did you have to make a, a just like a clean break transition when you went out on your own? No, a clean break. So actually, well, not a clean break. So actually, I mean, technically, if we're talking December 2013, what we're in, you know, just February 2017. So it's kind of over four four years that I've been able to build this. So maybe, yeah. Four years plus uh, a little. Four years, okay. Yeah, four, four years plus so this a little. So this I'm is the first client year. going into my okay. right now. So with what with the transition, actually, I had one of those like dream transitions that <laughs> happened to talk about uh, when it came for me to launch my own firm. I went into a managing director's office and basically said, hey, here's what I'm looking to do. They were trying to put me down one path uh, to partner with somebody else. And it was less than ideal in my personal situation. And I let them know I wanted to launch my own firm. And at that time, I was managing um, as the director of a firm. So um, basically, they asked if I would want to stay there and try to do my own thing. And I turned that offer down because I was very adamant to look like. Um, and basically I launched, I think I, yeah, as I launched, I basically stayed on with them for about six months to phase myself out. So with, when we talked about those fees in the beginning, I was able to do those fees. I also had the, you know, the benefit of, I had an additional income stream. So I, I phased myself out of there while I ramped workable wealth back up. Right. Right. Because they were working with AUM clients, probably mostly retirees, and you're you're working with all those young people that they weren't going to work with anyways. So very very not conflicted for them. Exactly, and a couple of my clients, I will say, a couple of my first clients, my early clients, I got from them. I think one of my clients, uh, two of my clients, two of my early clients, my very first client came from them, came from that firm from from like referrals because someone contacted their firm and they said, "Oh, I'm sorry, you're below our minimums, but have you met Mary Beth?" Yeah, one of the advisors there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I've got to ask, like, what this looks like from the the service model end. Right? So if clients are paying uh, fifteen hundred dollars up front and two fifty a month, like, what what do you do for them? Are you are you doing stuff on a monthly basis to to fill out their two fifty a month? Are are you what do you do with, in addition up front for an upfront fee? Like, what does this process or experience for clients look like? So one of the things that's talked about a lot, and um, as you know, is how to actually do the financial planning, whether you do it piecemeal, whether you do it all at once. And so just the way that I was trained in the industry and the way that I do my best work as a financial planner is I do the comprehensive plan up front. And that just basically is it's the intake meeting. It's the, you know, so basically when a client signs on, I send the contract and the invoice, they pay the invoice. From there, I send them a link to an online questionnaire and I send them a link uh, to upload the documents to share files. So we talk technology a bit too. So they upload um, the Google, the, it's a Google questionnaire that's very like high level information, nothing, there's no secure data, no account numbers, none of that. Is on there. Um, 
they give like a, a big picture and that just helps to cut for my uh my director of client services she just basically helps her to round out the agenda and get things input really quickly so they upload all of those things from there we do the intake meeting and my intake agenda is very templated i plug in all all of the cfp topics everything gets transferred in there and then i create the financial plan and so i'd probably say like the financial plan one of the things that i have done since I launched my firm, uh, the financial plan is 10 to 15 pages. It comes with a financial snapshot, the net worth statement, cash flow, the executive summary covers all of the topics, and then uh, retirement projections. And so this is, I, I literally do, it's a Word document. So this is one of the things. I don't do Money Guide Pro and call it financial planning. That's not how I work and I can't grasp that. Inf- it does not work for this generation either. For the age group that I work with, I give them Money Guide Pro and it doesn't matter to them for the most part. So even like, even, I mean, you mentioned retirement projections. So you're, you're, are you not even into planning software for retirement projections? I'll do depending. So I will, I, I mean, I say I use Money Guide Pro for clients who are established. If I know they have their kids and their mortgage in place, then I will do Money Guide Pro. If they are still in that like position of like trying to buy, buy a home or trying to start their family, which I probably say half of my clients are, then I just do a straight line, a straight line retirement projection in Excel. And, you know, we talk about that, but honestly, in terms of big picture focus, we're talking about like 10 other things as well. Right. Cause I guess, you know, when you're, you're 32 years old, like the primary concern is not, hey, am I saving enough to retire in 35 years when I haven't been alive for 35 years yet? It's it's like, right, exactly. hey, I've got, really, I've got really big goals. I'd like to buy a house in three years and get married. Can I afford to do that? Like, let's come up with the three-year exactly. plan, not the 35-year plan. It's like these couple, right? And then they're starting their family too. And so my my main job is like, okay, here's how much mortgage that your cash flow says you can afford, but let's actually factor in the thousand dollars a month for childcare plus, and then take that down. That's how much mortgage you can afford. So it's me preventing them from making stupid mistakes like that, where they lock themselves into a higher mortgage and haven't factored in the childcare that's going to come into play in two years when they've locked themselves into a thirty year old fixed mortgage. So that's fine. So that's the upfront plan creation. It covers recommendations across all of those areas. But with that is the financial snapshot is I just was trained in Excel and I haven't found anything that makes me happier yet. So the net worth statements in Excel and the cash flow is actually in Excel as well. So I do, I do a detailed amount of cash flow planning because I can tell you, I don't care if my clients are making a hundred thousand or 300,000, 500,000, a lot of them just have no idea where their money is going. And so I do have them create, um, they fill in an Excel cash flow, like just like rough estimates. I say, get held as you do or don't want to be. Um, they like to see kind of where the money is going and the template that I have shows percentages of what's going into each category. You know, if they're spending money on housing or groceries or whatnot. Uh, and then I take that and I basically say, okay, I can you know target areas to, or I can uh, tell you what to save and you're responsible for the rest. And I let my clients make that decision. They can, they can say, actually, we're struggling in some areas. Can you just give us a budget? Or actually just tell us what we need to be saving and we, were, we will allocate the rest. And so with the cash flow... I basically use Excel because then I can copy and paste them. They say, here's your projected save, you know, save this much into your 401k, into your emergency fund for your home down payment fund. Here's what you have left over. So I kind of show them how it actually works out with everything that where they still have money and how much they have. So one of the most common questions I hear around this kind of model, like I, I get when you do the upfront and they pay, you know, you said 1500 for an upfront financial plan. So 
what do they get for the other 11 year that they're now paying this to an on ongoing like what 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 else are you doing for them to to justify like an, an overall monthly fee on top of the plan you just did. So what I basically say when I'm when clients are we're going through the consultation is I say, okay, the, the plan's about 10 to 15 pages. We're going to go through all the recommendations in these areas. On top of the plan, though, after the executive summary, I, it's a lot. And I've been in the industry for, I, you know, how many years now? 13, 14. And I basically say, I know based on experience that I can do this plan for you and I can hand it to you. But the chances of you actually implementing the whole thing on your own are very slim. What I see happens a lot is you've paid for the plan, you would think that you've, you know, bought the solution and then the action is not taken on it or you pick and choose what you want to get done and things like estate planning or life insurance don't get done because they're a little bit harder and those are longer processes. So what I do is I take all of the the recommendations and I turn them into page action checklist for you. And basically each month, you're going to get my whole sales script, everybody. Each month, you uh, this, this action checklist gets plugged into a software where each month you get pinged with two to three activities that you have to complete that month. And what happens is I get copied on those as well. So, you know, whereas we have all of these things to, to do, maybe this next month, the next few things for you to do are to set up your emergency fund and move it to a higher interest rate savings account for you to reallocate your 401k, for example, or to, you know, start the life insurance application process. Basically, Basically, I then turn into your accountability partner. So what happens is we do the intake meeting, the financial plan delivery meeting. I then do a 30-day check-in to figure out how things are doing for the first month. Then we adjust along the way. Then from there, I do big six-month reviews with my clients to make sure we're measuring progress, to see everything that's been accomplished. But in between there is when we are working on individual action items. And some months, we might be on the phone multiple times. Some months, you won't, we won't be on the phone at all. Um, but in times like tax or open enrollment, um, those types of things will be on the phone for. So you have ongoing access to me throughout the year when your life changes. But in between then, this action checklist that we've created for you throughout the plan, these things for you to do, you're getting pinged with those each ability through this. I use what's called my plan map. You have the ability to email me, to request assistance, to alter due dates. And I basically say, you know, I can see when you're changing due dates or I know, you know, I get notified if you haven't responded. So I basically say, I give you a month or two buffer. And from there, if I haven't heard from you, then we'll send you an email to ping you or we'll, we'll call you if you fall off the earth, basically. So they get a lot of value out. There's a lot, I leverage technology. So, so what does my plan map do exactly? Because I, I don't think that's very widely adopted by most advisors. Can you talk about that a little bit more? It's not. Everybody is they're so resistant to it. And I love it. I depend on it so much. It helps my practice so much. So um, so the executive summary that any of us basically create, I will say this is probably, a, it takes me maybe 10 minutes when I wrap up my plan. I go through the executive summary and I literally turn it into like a, a three col- three or four column chart on like that I can input table that I can put to the plan where it basically says, here's your to-do list where it says, you know, open emergency fund to save, you know, 25, you know, move $25,000 over. It says that it says who's responsible. And it says the page to reference in the plan. But what happens is this, this chart then gets plugged into my plan map. So my assistant basically will take the chart and you can plug in individual tasks for clients. You can say, you can say that plug in the task, you plug in their email, you plug in the due date, and who's responsible for it, meaning it's either the client or me. And basically each month, when the month hits, whether it's the 1st or the 15th, I think are the dates that we choose for the due dates, the client gets an email. It says, this month, here's your activity, or please let us know if you've completed this. And so the client gets emailed, or it actually says like, you know, Steve and Susie, tell us how you're doing on this task. And they open the email and it says what it is, you know, start your life insurance process or, you know, send your open enrollment benefits over. It's October. And then from there, 
they can email me directly if they respond to anything. It can go to me directly or they can just request assistance and they can input a note saying, oh, we'll discuss on our next call or need more time to you know, gather paperwork or whatever it is. Or they can just request a call with me as well. So it's just automating all of that like in-between action item management correspondence stuff, basically. Yes, so much. Yes, exactly. So I don't have to plug in individual tasks of me. Hey, Mary Beth, follow up with the client to do their 401k. And you know, I have like big stuff like that in my CRM, but I really leverage my client, the client plan map, because it's a great way for me to stay in front of clients as well. My my logo's on there. They're getting emails. They know it's coming from me. So when I do my six month review wrap up, or when I do my financial plan wrap ups, I say, you know, just know in the months ahead, you'll be receiving automatic reminders from my client plan map. We'll have this ability to do these things. Um, It pings them also when they need to set up their six month reviews, but obviously we have our own list to track that as well. But it's just a really great way for us to stay in front of them and to help to hold them accountable. And for me too, because when I have 60 clients and they all have action items, um, it's nice for me to be reminded too when things are coming too, right? It's a, it comes into my inbox. I get, I'm not going to lie, on the 1st and 15th, I wake up to a lot of emails sometimes because they all come through. But I can do a quick scroll, right? And I can see like, I can kind of just do it. it takes me maybe 20 to 30 minutes. I'll scroll through all like, which ones do I need to, which ones require something from me or do I need to prod the client on? So I really love using that. And it actually helps me to provide a ton of value to them because I think the accountability part is where clients need more help and advisors lack. So you go through this process, you're, you're doing your, your check-ins and your big month reviews and you're working through your action item list. Does that mean that at, like at some point in 12 or 18 months, you, you, you get through all the stuff on the list, you finish with your clients and then, and then they, they stop paying the ongoing monthly fee because you're done? No, I'd say, so where I'm at right now, I would probably say retention wise, maybe like 25% of clients have fallen off. Like some reach that point where they're good to go and there's not really much more I can do. I'm not going to lie. There are those clients. But for the most part, especially like this age group that supposedly doesn't have all the money to pay the fees or doesn't have that complicated of lives, like, no, it's still going. Their lives are changing. Like, you know, they're merging finances. They're getting married. They're buying houses. They're having babies. They're trying to price shop daycare. They're trying to negotiate, you know, career raises. They're trying to start their own businesses. Like this is like so much transition. And that's why I say there's a lot of I am a high touch practice. There's a lot that my clients can reach out to me for. And I do help them through things like negotiations. I have helped them clients get plenty of raises in terms of here's how you do your value add. Here's what to do your research. Same thing on the business side. Any, any of my clients, I work with a lot of solopreneurs. So there's the business planning side of what I do as well. So I will actually sit with them. And this again, is like you know, getting, make sure, making sure it's priced in, but I will look at their P&Ls. I will ask them about their pricing. I'll ask them about the profit margins. Um, a lot of my clients are service-based entrepreneurs. And so understanding again, like what are you earning? How, you know, they don't know how to pay themselves, the proper structure, how to set up payroll, how to determine what should be payroll versus distributions. Um, so I coordinate with, you know, them with their CPAs. There's a lot of analysis. I mean, most of my clients, a lot of them don't know how to analyze their profit and loss statements. So it's teaching them about those things. And and for that, I make the relationship a lot more stickier. Interesting. So, you know, in essence, like by the time you spend 12 to 18 months getting through all the stuff on their checklist, their lives have changed. There's a whole bunch of new things on the checklist. Oh, yeah. I mean, so every six months, basically, we're reevaluating. Um, so at the reviews that I, for my own process, I copy in their old action checklist, we go through what they've completed. And then before they get the follow up um, from the review meeting, they will add any new items on there, or make adjustments as needed. So sometimes it's, you know, paring things down, sometimes they'll end up with a longer to do list. It just depends on where they're at. But it does typically get updated every six months. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. And what's the 
rest of the technology that you're using to, to power the practice. You mentioned my plan map, but what what else and Excel and Word, but what what else is in there for uh, just running the business for what you do? God bless Microsoft Office. Wealth- keeps all of us going. But. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I use Wealthbox for my CRM. I use ConvertKit for my newsletter system. Um, I started off on MailChimp, but I converted over to ConvertKit. I use them for my newsletter. Um, I also, so I use Wealthbox a lot, but I've also started using Trello in terms of big picture, like practice, like goals and to do's. And I actually have like my, I have. I don't. I have not figured out an easier way to do this, but I love it so much. I'm never. I don't. I don't know if I would ever change it. In Trello, I basically have Trello is like just like boards, and it's a way to kind of collaborate with your team. One of the boards I have is a client scheduler, and literally just has each. There's like a column for each month, and then I can create little tags for like client names, so the client's last name. And basically, whoever's due for a review that month, Lisa, my assistant, can go in and say, "Okay, we got to email all these people because they're due for the review." She can send their emails out. And then like just basically adjust the due dates and then they have the review. They automatically just drag the name to the next six months over. So while we could do all of these tasks and like overflow the CRM, it's just really nice to be able to see like open up my, you know, that board and say, okay, these 10 people are due for reviews this month as opposed to like trying to go through a task list or I can't, I haven't figured out a better way to do that. But it's just really nice for me to see that. I also track uh, goals and just like some processes like my, I manage my whole podcast workflow in Trello. And then there's like the whole podcast technology. But I'd say those are the big things. Trello, oh, Google Drive, Microsoft, Wealthbox, ConvertKit. I think those are the big ones. Out of curiosity, why ConvertKit instead of MailChimp? I feel like to, to the extent advisors are doing mailing lists at all, MailChimp still seems to be by far the most popular. So what what led you to ConvertKit instead? I believe it was a price point issue when I got my newsletters hit a certain uh, reach. And then it was also ease of use. Uh, I think it was, I think okay. those were two things, to be honest. I can't remember what, what exactly what it yeah, was. That's, but that's kind I of a caveat on, on MailChimp. You know, it's, it's built to be free out of the box. I forget what the number is, like your first thousand subscribers or something. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if, if you actually start growing and building a big list, it, it, it's not horribly priced. But like the dollars start adding up. It gets a little pricier once, you're, once your list is growing. Yeah, and I think the oh, I think it was I was using Mailchimp plus lead pages for opt-ins for um like the book and like for landing pages for my website, and then I think with ConvertKit I realized you could create your own combined with the website, and so that was kind of what prompted it. For folks that are listening, we'll we'll put links out to all these in the show notes. I know there's a couple of new tools here that are are probably not familiar for a lot of advisors: My Plan Map and ConvertKit and Trello. So uh, this is episode 61. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 61, uh, we'll, we'll have links in the show note for all these technology tools if you want to go and check them out. So from your, for your business, from the kind of overall revenue side, you know, you talked about the recurring revenue from the from the business and where you're trying to grow but you mentioned writing and speaking as as separate income streams and I, I know you do some of that because you you do it for your marketing like you published a book and do a lot of speaking so can you talk a little bit more about like how do you what's going on with with the this other revenue that is separate from your advisory business if you're doing it to getting clients or maybe you're not doing it to get clients at this point uh, no, sure. Uh, well, so basically what happened was, I think when I started speaking, it was speaking a lot of industry events. And um, that was kind of where it started. And I think it was just like, you know, that was like a for free thing, right? I was just going and kind of spreading yeah, like, word about working. Hey, hey Mary Mark. Beth, come, 
come talk about what you're doing. And it's like really cool to be invited. So you said, sure. Yeah. And then you go and speak somewhere. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Yes. But, so that's kind of where it all started. And um, same thing with like the, the media stuff, being in the media, it all started like my media presence actually started from being in the financial planning media from working with Gen Y and millennials at the time. That was kind of where everything spun off from. And then it turned into NBC found me from Twitter. And then from there, everything kind of evolved. And so the, the writing income was kind of started, I think, when I... I've always loved writing. Writing has always been kind of a thing for me. When I launched my practice, I believe there was some side income there that kind of just came in from different product from different projects. So as I was building, obviously revenue was an issue. And so having some sort of income was something I wanted to make sure I did. So I had some side income or some side gigs with different places, like I think like AOL, like Daily Finance at the time, um, wrote for different places. And then from there... So, go ahead. so you would just like contact them and say, hey, I, I you know, I wrote this article about uh, you know saving more in your four hundred one k. Hey, do you guys want to want to pay me for it? No, they uh, they kind of found me again. It was from a lot of my, the, the side income stuff. There stemmed from me having a presence in our industry and kind of getting it building kind of a following there. And so they reached out to me, or I was connected with them. For, uh, they either reached out to me directly, or I was connected with them through another financial planner who already had like a contact with them. Um, I didn't necessarily know enough how to seek out <laughs> these opportunities to be completely honest. And that's how I actually pursue and treat this income stream right now as well. I don't actively seek out speaking opportunities for the most part. And I don't, I don't seek out, I don't seek out anything that comes from like the consulting side, the kind of like big, that's uh, just too vague. And I, I welcome the opportunities. If anything, I, all I've done so far is I've filtered down what I will and won't do. But from there, um, pe- the, income kind of came through writing writing contracts like that but what what actually happened was i wrote my book it'll be three years ago in march i think i wrote the book is it three years ago gosh i think it's three years ago or two years ago sorry uh, it's had a baby and brain is a little bit you, you yeah, got time. you've got two young you've yeah. got two young children and like everything gets fuzzy no, yeah, no problem to, like, it's all good um but when i wrote the book i wrote the book with the thought in mind that again by this generation supposedly who didn't need the advice, I was getting a lot of people who needed the advice and couldn't even afford the fees I was charging at the time, which were at lower price points. And so by writing the book, my thought was to be able to stay relevant, obviously to help them get started and to be able to kind of like, I I did not do it for an income stream. That was not my goal with writing the book. But that actually has been a business card in terms of it's led to speaking engagements. It's led to... um, just recently, actually, this month, I was approached at the end of last year. Somebody bought my book for a subscription box for entre- for female entrepreneurs. So I sold over a thousand books to the subscription box, and so now, obviously, the book has oh yeah, yeah, exactly. It's going out to a thousand over a thousand women who are in my target. Like I work with female entrepreneurs. My book is being mailed to a thousand female entrepreneurs, uh, solopreneurs, creative creative entrepreneurs who get the subscription box. So it's like not only to get paid for this, but it's also going out to my target market. So that's kind of fantastic opportunity like that. So the income for that, it's just kind of evolved over time. I basically, it's kind of like a, honestly, it's a wait and see. And at this point in time, I just filter out opportunities, whether or not they are aligned with my ideal of what I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to reach and, and who I want to work with. So whereas I used to do more speaking for the industry and, and would go to different conferences and do things at this point in time, unless I'm planning on attending the conference for my own CE credits, for my own education, I turn those opportunities down now because I only speak to clients that are, or to audiences that might be an actual target client of mine. Um, and I do charge for those fees, for those um, 
speaking engagements as well. And so it typically just depends on who the audience is, the size and what the topic is. Um, but, but now with the book, I'm able to say, okay, well, here's the rate that I'm charging. But if you want to pay this, I'll actually throw in X number of copies of my book as well. And so that's a way for me to get more book sales and to do other things also. Okay. Interesting. It, you know, it is a, it is kind of a fascinating filter I find that comes that when you focus into some kind of niche, a, you know, it's, it's amazing the sorts of opportunities that can find you out, right? Like you're, you wrote a book on working your wealth that became so well known for female entrepreneurs, your target market that they contacted you and asked to distribute your book for which they paid you to a thousand of your target prospects so that you can potentially do business with them, right? Like that's the, that to me is the power of what happens with niches and focus after a couple of years, right? I don't, I don't know any advisor generalist who has had someone come to them and say, Hey, I'd like to take the best representation of your expertise and send it to a thousand strangers who might be interested and I'll pay you for it. Exactly. Right. Like that, that doesn't happen. Exactly. And that's, I mean, that's amazing. Until you focus, until you focus into a market. Right. And the fact that this book is still working, you know, so it's two, three years after I wrote the book. And that's the fact that, you know, that's the really amazing thing is this book is still working, you know, well, you know, after I've launched it. And so that's, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, how many books did you sell initially? And that, you know, that wasn't the point. The point was for me to have this resource available to me. How many books did you sell initially? (laughs) Initially, I think I sold about... I think I sold about a thousand initially. And so it wasn't like some big, like, you know, and I went through like a whole launcher and whatnot. But, you know, since then, it's been, you know, thousands. Obviously, I just sold a thousand. Um, it's, I've sold at multiple conferences. It's been purchased for, you know, handfuls of sessions that I've done. And then you're able to do things like have a flash sale on Kindle. And, you know, for me now, I can leverage the book. It gets mailed out to every new client that signs on with a, a little pretty note card that was, that printed up that says, you know, welcome to the Workable Wealth family, looking excited to working with you read this book or feel free to pass it along to somebody. So there's really unique ways that you can leverage that. And so, like I said, so the break even, a lot of people are like, what kind of money did you make on it? I probably say I, I broke even on the book on the first year. So that, that definitely paid for itself in terms of money, but that wasn't my intention was to actually make money off of it. But because of the speaking engagements I got because of the book that has led to plenty of clients, Yeah, which has led me to actually. No, and I think that's one of the key things mm-hmm. around books, right? Like just, you sold a thousand, you're like eight or nine dollars on Kindle, thirteen dollars on paperback. You know, you only keep a portion of that because Amazon or the others take a slice. So like, you know, you you a couple of dollars a book times a thousand books. Like you don't make your money on the books. You make your money on the fact that other people send this beautiful paper bound business card to a thousand strangers and tell them to read it and then make them interested in you. Like those are the, the, that's the real value to me around, around publishing. Oh yeah. I mean, I work with a lot of my clients are like, I work with creative entrepreneurs, creative female entrepreneurs, and I work with um, like therapists to become a subset as well. But you know, the creative women, my, my book has a glittery gold dollar sign on the cover. I mean, I got people reaching out to me for months afterwards telling me how much they love the cover of my book. So, I mean, that was geared specifically towards women. It wasn't necessarily, you know, (laughs) for men. So um, it it worked well, the the targeting of that as well. Interesting. And how did you actually go about getting it done and, and published? Like, did you get a, a publisher that wanted to work with you as well, the way you were getting article inquiries because you were you know, doing all this initial speaking in the industry about serving Gen Y? Or did it come about some other way? I had some publishers reach out to me. And when it came time for me to actually 
write the book by kind of just snooping and talking to other people and hearing about others' people's experiences, again, and working with a publisher. Same way that I launched Workable Wealth, I was very specific about what I wanted the book to look like and interior and exterior. So I opted to go the self-publishing route because, again, that, that cover to me was very important and I knew I would give up control over it by going with the publisher. And so, again, because it wasn't necessarily something I was trying to make money off of, but mostly I really wanted creative control over the process, especially for my first time. So I hired a project manager and I found I leveraged Facebook groups for a lot of my marketing in the beginning. I found a um, cover designer and interior book designer from the group and I got to work. So you just like you found these folks through Facebook groups, like a, a, a group for people self-publishing their books and say, hey, I need to self-publish my book. Who wants to manage this project? Actually, a group for female entrepreneurs, creative female entrepreneurs, just be like a group that I I hung out in. And so when it came time for me, I basically said, like, looking to have my book cover designed, put a call out in the group, people, you know, responded like, oh, I could do that for you. I interviewed three or four different people. And then I had done some research and kind of had an idea of what I wanted it to look like as well and um, just found somebody that I was comfortable working with. And, And from there, she actually happened to be very knowledgeable of the process of leveraging create space which is amazon self-publishing platform and so she she kind of helped to navigate that and the launching of it though like there's i didn't just say okay like it's it's up uh, there was a launch process behind it too and i leveraged a lot of i can send you the link afterwards if you remind me um pat flynn launched his book and had like a whole thing about using a launch team um to spread the word and i did a lot of that as well i had people apply to be on the launch team which means i got a pre-copy of the book um, they could read it ahead of time. They could help spread the word to their audiences. Um, we did a raffle, that sort of thing. Because I had already actually already had like a newsletter following and list at that time as well. So I really lever- leveraged that. I created my own Facebook group around it and kind of helped to to build up exposure that way. Okay, very cool. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll make sure we we either follow up or go on online directly and find a, a copy of Pat Flynn's launch team article. Make sure it's linked in the in the show notes as well. So. As you kind of look at this growth trajectory overall, you know we kind of mentioned a little bit at the beginning, but I'd, I'd I'd love to talk about it more. You know, you you're for something years in the business. I guess you know, we said five years, but really, like you're you're in your fifth year. You're clearing two hundred thousand dollars of revenue and growing well from there. You know, just charging planning fees for fee for service, and you also had two babies over the past. <laughs> three, two and a half, three years. So I guess you were, uh, you were pregnant like almost within a year of when you launched the business and went out on your own. So can you just like talk to us about that? How do you, how do you get a business from scratch up to $200,000 of planning fees in four years while also having two children? Well, uh, you have a team in place. <laughs> so basically, so well, going into it, really, it was about leveraging systems and processes and communicating with my my clients. Because I am a virtual firm, and because I rely so heavily on virtual meetings as well, um, and I've already had like an online marketing in place, I've, I've done a newsletters probably since the beginning of launching my business. It was weekly, it's biweekly now, but I was used to leveraging technology to communicate with people. And so when I first got pregnant with our daughter, who's now two and a half, I believe, I can't remember at the time if I launched it in my newsletter or to my clients directly first, or if I just put it out in the newsletter, maybe simultaneously. But basically, I, I let people know 
she was, I was due in July with her and I made an announcement in January that I was pregnant. So I think I waited until I was like 16 or 17 weeks long and it went public. And from there, it was just a matter of, um, I know it went public, whatever it went public it did, but I reached out to clients right away and it basically said, Hey, here's what's going on. Just as a reminder, I've always had like some sort of help with the, with the company, whether it's, you know, whether it's a client service associate or like Lisa, who's my director of getting it, you know, getting it done. She's my director of like all things. I've had a um, associate financial planner in the background recently as well. So when it came time, basically it's just being really clear on what clients can expect and not making it an issue. There is no panic, for example. So recently when I, when I was going or gearing up for maternity with my son. I think I sent an email back in August, basically said like a lot's been happening behind the scenes at Workable Wealth. And I wanted to make sure you're in the know about our current team and who you can expect to hear from now and for a brief period in the coming months. So I reintroduced the team. I said, Lisa is a director of getting it done. Lex is our associate financial planner. Here's who you've probably heard from in the past. Here's who you reach out to when you have certain requests or who you may hear from. And then I basically said additional expansion. In other news, our team's, our team's expanding. You know, I'm personally expanding as well. I said, we're having a little boy. This is August. I said in late November. And I said, we're looking forward to an adventure with two. And basically said, scheduling will be a big focus. So this is why I basically said, this is what's on your plate now. If you're due for a six-month review, I was due in, um, right after Thanksgiving is when I was due. So I basically said, if you're due for a six-month review in November or December, the goal is going to get you on the calendar prior to November 10th for your meeting. So I was giving myself a two-week window. And I said, you'll receive an email from our team in early October if this is you. And I said, which by the way, as a financial planner, the worst time to have a baby is like the end of the year uh, <laughs> in terms of like year-end planning strategies. But uh, I basically said, there's of course going to be year-end issues that we may need to address, but the goal is to have everybody reached out to with any pertinent issues before the middle of October. And I said, here, and I gave them my due date. And I set the basic, the expectation that there would be, I'd be taking four weeks off completely to adjust and bond and they could reach out to Lisa and Lex during that time, email them. Uh, and that I basically said, I'll, I'll be able to log in inter- intermittently, but obviously response times will be delayed and know that by emailing Lisa, Lisa was who um, ended up being the main contact, by emailing Lisa and recently responding with client, she would have direct access to me and could filter out those requests. She would you know, push things up. She would respond to clients if necessary, but she actually was the one who managed my calendar and managed that interaction while we were away. But I let clients know in August of 2017 that I would be out for you know six to seven weeks, basically, is what it ended up being, but actually ended up being like eight to nine if, at the end of the year. And so I gave them the heads up in advance obviously. And and I wrapped up by saying, thank you so much for your kind words and support through this transition. Um, And I sent another email in October and just said like, you know, touching base again, here's what to expect. If you haven't scheduled your due date, because obviously there's those people you can't get your your review. I mean, if you haven't scheduled that, the people you can't get a hold of, that you're now being pushed back into January. And then that was it basically just said, uh, Lisa would reach back out. So I went into... Labor. I had my son uh, November seventeenth, and I returned to work on January 9th. So during that time, she was the main contact, main go to. I had an autoresponder on that basically said, "You know, thanks for reaching out. If you're a client, like, <laughs> please resend your email with client in the title and and CC Lisa, like follow instructions." And um, I had a couple client issues during that time. Like one who got the new job, she got the new job while she was negotiating careers while I was on my leave because I was helping her like kind of, you know, coaching her through analyzing packages and what would be the best uh, choice financially. And I think there was maybe one other client issue. But other than that, I was able to um, 
take that time to to bond with our son. And, and it was really because we did the upfront work, right? So I had the, I, I, we leveraged Trello a lot during that time as well, in terms of like, who, what are the projects? There was just like, a, I had a big brain dump board in there of like, who do we need to do? Like, you know, any tax loss har- harvesting, like, you know, IRA contributions, like 401k maxing out, whether it's um, convert Roth conversions, all of that stuff was all in there. Um, and I just went through each client. So I spent the upfront time doing that work and it was a little bit more hectic, but because I was able to go through each client and then cross them off the list, I was able to have that peace of mind knowing I went into my leave without any like loose things hanging over me. So I guess it, it, it's sort of an essential piece of this. Like, Do you have to grow the business to the point that you've got at least one staff member to kind of support you and back you up in order to to do this and make it work? I think you have to. So with our first, I think I, I'm trying to remember if I, I had her, I had, um, I had somebody on team, but I definitely didn't rely on her as much as I had Lisa. I basically said like, just, you know, she's in the background, she'll be available. But basically I think I had the same instructions for clients and I think they just, they sent them directly to me though. And so I still like saw, I think they came to me and it wasn't obviously the workload wasn't as heavy as, you know, two and a half years ago. I didn't have as many clients, but. Well, yeah, I was going to say like, it was more manageable when there were fewer clients so far. Yeah, exactly. And I will say though, I had, I must, I don't know how many clients I had back then. Let me see how many I had. I can probably tell you, but it was maybe, let's see, maybe 30, 30. No. Uh, yeah, probably 30 or I don't know, 35, give or take. I don't know. No, 30, maybe. But basically what I remember one client asking me, so this is always a question too. So I, my clients pay me monthly. I remember one client finding out and asking me, are we still going to be paying our monthly fee during that time? And so then for me, yeah, it was, do, you like, do you do you pause the fee while you're out? <laughs> right. And so I, I had to reeducate her. And I said, actually, this is an annual fee broken into monthly payments. We still do all of this work and service things. The business still runs behind the scenes at that time. So that was the, that was the one issue I had during that time as well. But basically, I mean, it took, it took planning. It's, it takes knowing your clients and going through the issues. But I, I went into my leave with confidence. And I actually, second time around, I gave myself the buffer because I had my daughter two weeks early and I was I was I was at the hospital sending client emails because I had I had meetings scheduled that week. Uh-huh. Um, but <laughs> this time around, I will Don't. say, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I gave myself a two week buffer. Um, lessons learned. Like, lessons don't, learned. Yeah, don't cut it too yeah. tight because exactly. babies come so early sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. They're on their own agenda. But um, but by that, I will say most and this is also, again, by establishing those relationships and having clients that you work with. That's something very important to me. I, I can't tell you, I don't even know how many cards I got from my clients and just like congratulations emails and stuff in the mail over the past, like, you know, since he was born. And, and that was really amazing to me. And because I work with a lot of my clients are moms and themselves too, or they have two at home, I'm getting like the, you can do it emails from them or it gets better like, and stuff like that. But it, my relationships with my clients are so much stronger now. And that, that was the part where going back to the beginning, I didn't know if I had the confidence to have my own practice because the quote unquote sales always scared me. I just only knew what it looked like to work with people in their 60s and 70s and, and was a little bit nervous about, you know, how do I actually do that? But now having clients who are in similar similar life transitions or ahead or also building their businesses and managing families, it's really cool to have those relationships and to be able to assist them to, you know, have their own clarity as well. So that's the really cool part about, you know, having a niche niche. So what does this look like now in terms of just You've got two little ones that you're that handling. Like, are you are you working in your husband's uh, uh, a stay at home dad? Are you are you both working and just trying to juggle this? Like, what is it? What does this balance look like when you're 
still trying to run your business or, you know, coming back to your business. And now there's two children under three at home. So we have a nanny Uh, (laughs) and my husband, my husband is still working full time. The goal is, and this was the the financial planner in me. um, The goal is for him to be able to make a transition. And and that is still the goal. And that'll probably happen once our son's a little bit older, but yeah, we're both still working full time. We have a nanny. She comes in four days a week. Uh, we both work from home, actually. That's one of the unique things. My husband's um, job allows him to work from home as well. And right now, though, I mean, so I've been back at work, work back in the, back in the office, quote unquote, probably for about a month. A month. I've signed on five new clients this year. Again, though, wow. but with those parameters in place around fees and different things that you know that I'm looking to do and, and up leveling. So just for me. Um, um, this is the year for me. What it looks like is just again, it's it's being very intentional about who I want to work with and what this practice looks like going forward. So it's just going to look like the same level of service, making sure that the fees, the price point is right, and those people who are getting the service are able to to pay for you know pay the fee because there is a lot of you know business and personal planning that happens in there. But yeah, it's just con- kind of continuing to grow. And I have so I have a, an associate financial planner. I have Lisa, who I depend on a lot. Lisa's role is kind of evolving to where she's been kind of the CSA. Of it. She's also like fantastic in terms of having her to offload things like, can you reach out to this person to, to schedule that? She mails out all of the books to like new clients. She handles all my birthday cards, even remotely, by the way. I'm in San Diego and she's in um, Michigan. So that's fantastic as well. It's like we can manage this relationship in two oh, different so your, locations. Your team is all virtual. Yes, exactly. Your team is all virtual. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And so we're ramping up Lisa's role right now as well and kind of up-leveling her to what she can do so that when we do bring in like that associate financial planner, we're really clear on clearly defined roles. That's my big thing right now is there's been a little bit of overlap. So I just want to make sure I'm kind of building one person at a time as opposed to doing too much. So I want to make sure that Lisa is happy. Lisa feels fulfilled because she's one of those people that I depend on a lot right now. So what is her... And I we had a retreat actually last July too, like a virtual retreat where we talked about like, what's your dream role? What's your dream pay? What do you see your you know contribution to this company being? Uh, what do you see your role evolving into? Because I want to make sure that my team is happy as well. Obviously, if they're happy, then the business is, is better also. So focusing on making sure she's rounded out, then the associate financial planner, building that from there and, and newing up. So for other women maybe that are out there and interested in going out and starting their own advisory firm, but concerned because they also want to start a family at some point and are, are concerned about this intersection of the two, like what advice would you give to you know women that want to go start a family but have this concern around starting a family and starting a business in relatively close conjunction to one another? The biggest thing I could say is it's about setting and managing client expectations. That's that's all that I mean. That's the number one thing. Uh, obviously, a client signs on. I'm not saying like, hey, I could get pregnant in the next you know twelve to eighteen months. So just so you know, FYI, yeah. you don't need to have that conversation. Just so you know when you sign on, <laughs> yeah, yeah, disclaimer. But you basically just say like, here's what you can expect from our relationship. I lay it all out right up front. I basically say like, you know, my whole educational little script in the beginning is like, here's the process. Here's when you can expect to hear from me. Here's when I'll be available to you. If you can't get get a hold of me, here's what you can expect. So just going into it, if you are concerned, don't not do it because you might be out for a little bit. Basically, just set your process up or set yourself up ahead of time to where you're preparing. Just like our goal is, our our job is to create plans for our clients. The best thing you can do is just create that advanced plan. I still say, 
jump into it, like take the risk because once you have a baby, there's that's definitely not a good risk either. You know, I mean, you're, there's no good time, not not a good risk, but there's never going to be a good time for you to do this. And and I tried so long to kick the can down the road with workable wealth, and it wasn't until a friend of mine was like, "Just do it. If it doesn't work, you go back and get a job in the industry. If somebody's going to pay you again. Like that's the worst case. So if you're not doing it because of this, like, well, then you. You start the firm, you have your baby. If it doesn't work out, you go back and get a job in the industry. Like that's, those are usually, that's your fallback plan. Well, and it, you know, it, it really is a good point as well that I see a lot of, a lot of advisors who are really concerned about going on their own and trying this out and, and, and what if it doesn't work and then what comes next. And, and you know, so remember like what comes next, there's still a giant talent shortage for basically any kind of experienced advisor under the age of 50 something. So there will be jobs for you to go back to. I actually know a lot of advisors that have found that that going out on their own, like they never got better job offers to be an employee until they stopped being an employee and started their own business. Because there's something about how I think other advisors tend to come at it. Firm owners get really excited about hiring entrepreneurial people. So going out to start your own business is actually a surprisingly good way to get hired into a, someone else's business. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. But just remembering, there's always a fallback there that you just go get another job. There's not a shortage of them right now. Thank goodness. There's there's not a shortage of financial advisor employee jobs. Exactly. I mean, and the thing is, I mean, for me anyways, so it's been four years, we've built it to 200,000 where it's going to be this year. I'm still in my early 30s, you know, and so this is, a, and that's the other thing too that I will say, I, uh, you yeah, know, you have a, industry, a long I've runway. Got, I've got a runway ahead of me and, you know, there's other people who I've been listening like, oh, that's nothing. But for me, I, I, I constantly say like, there's time on my side right now. And, and for me, I do focus. That's why, you know, this year, for example, building it and refining it, that sets the stage for, you know, a long way into the future. So um, that's the other thing too, is like when you are being a younger planner, there's that fear of that you have to get going right away and get to the, you know, six figures, multiple six figures. Like there's like this constant rush with all of us. And, and for me, I'm just, just know what your goals are. And again, like even, even with us within the industry, I think there's a lot of comparison game. There's a lot of like, oh, we all do things differently. And it goes back to even financial planners need their own financial planners. So um just focus on your own goals as well. And just because you are starting your firm, don't feel like you have to get to that six-figure mark just because. I think it goes back to knowing what your goals are. Just want to say that for other people listening. <laughs> so, Amen. Amen. So, I, I mean, speaking kind of this this forward-looking growth trajectory and having a long runway, like where does this go for you? Like what is the – is there an ultimate goal or game plan for where this ends out? Do you have a, a – a sense as to what you want to build towards or how big you want to build it or, or what you're doing with it in the, in the yeah. long run? Yeah, I'd say um, one of the goals for me is probably it's revenue of like a million, million and a half. I, I could have multiple millions, but I'd say probably getting to that point of 1 million in revenue, million and a half in revenue somewhere. I mean, and whether I would say my absolute like max tap out, like however big the firm grows, like I couldn't imagine me having more than like 250. Like obviously that's like a team of advisors that would be under me as well. 250 clients, somewhere around there. I don't want to have a huge firm, but that would basically probably be what it is. And then that revenue, maybe an associate advisor, a partner eventually. I basically know that I want to have that kind of revenue, that number of clients. And then from there, I want the systems and streamlined things in place so that I can focus more again on on spreading financial education to a bigger audience. So my goal would probably be around 1.5 million, 250 clients. 
and then whatever that team looks like. And I kind of have some idea on what the staff would be. I've, I've done some brainstorming there in terms of how big the team would be, maybe, you know, five to six people. And then from there, building the uh, the Work Your Wealth arm, basically the book is Work Your Wealth, the podcast is Work Your Wealth. So building out that business in terms of um, educating people. That's a personal passion project of mine. And just curious, like where does, where does this uh, 1.5 million target come from? Because I feel like we, you know, we uh, always interesting just how we get to the goals that we set. Like, is it for you more about 250 clients is the number that you want to reach? And that's just what the revenue would add up to given what you're planning to charge them and do for them? Or is it a like, you've got an income goal and you know you you need the business to be a certain size so that the net profits come down to the the dollar amount that you're trying to reach like how how do you set a a, a target like that for yourself it's an early retirement goal to be <laughs> to be honest so we've done our own financial okay. planning it, it's an income goal it's basically the net income and what we could say what we we know what we need to live off of what kind of lifestyle that we want for our family um and then basically it, it's the the net the salary and net profit goal um what we'd be able to do with that and how to make that okay. work for us so it's kind of a personal goal um, so that's so that's like a financial independence threshold once we get here I can pay all my bills and achieve my goals so I don't need to grow any more income. And that's when you go more in the financial literacy, consumer education direction. Correct. Okay. Interesting. Very cool. Yeah, it's a little different, but that, I mean, because the firm could obviously keep growing, right? I mean, I'm, like I said, early 30s, there's there's a, a long runway ahead of me, but that's something that for me, that's where, you know, that's the benefit of our industry and our, our profession as well as I could have that very much that lifestyle practice. And that's, that's what I want because I have bigger goals in other areas. And, and for the work your wealth arm, there's, I have a lot of ideas there. There's another book to come. There's more educational stuff to come there. So as you look back on this over the past couple of years that you've been going down this road already, I, I'm, I'm just curious, like, are there, are there things about being a business owner and starting family now that, surprise you relative to what you had in your head about how this was going to go for something years ago when you were getting launched? Like, has this pretty much unfolded as you as, as you'd expected? Or were there surprises in how this has happened? Oh, dear God, no, nowhere near what I, what I expected. So just like, so obviously, so what, did, what did you expect? <laughs> oh, I, I feel like maybe maybe it's kind of like life. I didn't necessarily expect anything. I just plan for the worst. I'm mostly like as a financial planner, I'm just incredibly conservative. So like basically when we launched, like even my husband, and we talk now, he's like, I plan for you not to have an income for three years. Like that was what he was telling himself. And I had a positive like in the first year. And I think that basically- oh, like that was... That was part of the plan for you guys, literally. Like we're gonna you're gonna live solely on his income for a couple of years while your business grows so that you're not counting on any income from that from the business if it doesn't grow. Kind of, yeah. I guess in his mind that was what he was saying he did, but I didn't plan on my income growing. And, you know, I didn't really yeah, I basically like I was okay. nervous about not having an income. So in general, I basically I didn't know what to expect um in terms of in terms of like the evolution of of the business being built, but um I think there was a lot of comparison, I would say. Like, there was a lot of like, in the beginning, there was a lot of anxiety and guilt of like, okay, am I doing this right? Am I making enough? And I was like, going back to, I was very worried about what other people were doing and was I doing it right or wrong? And there was, I was already being different, right? With this millennial Gen Y focused and then the monthly fee, I felt like an outcast already, right? So what you were concerned about what other people were doing in, in what context? Like what do other financial planners do, or, their do income, for Gen Y clients or just yes. like- Am I making enough and successful like, as right, an advisor? Am I doing it all wrong? 
Okay. Yeah. Am I making enough things successful as an advisor? Because when I launched, right, I was told, no, that this generation didn't need advice. I was told, no, it's not going to work, that these people won't pay for it. This generation doesn't need any help anyways. So there was a lot of those questions that I went out with to launch this practice. And then, you know, and then again, I'm charging people $75 a month at first. So there was a lot of that, like, oh, I was kind of prepared for like, it's probably not going to work. And maybe I'm going to have to go back and get a job. That was what I was telling myself as like the safety net. So in, in that sense, and then so that was the fact that it's grown. There was there was that when I launched, I was a little bit more pessimistic than optimistic because that's just how I, I am naturally. But the, the you thing roll, that I, I understand that's how I roll just to make sure that we have all the boxes checked financially. In general, though, I I never would have thought that the I always say niche, niche, whatever. The niches would have like they basically built themselves. I went out focusing on young people, and then by Brian, my husband, sharing what I was doing just like on Facebook and his audience, like the military officers became a subset of clients. And because I, one of my early on clients from a Facebook group was a coach for therapists. And from there, I now have multiple, ther- I mean, probably, I don't know, a handful of therapists definitely are, are, are female therapists are my client subsets as well. So I know that practice. And then by meeting somebody else who ran a Facebook group early on for creative female entrepreneurs, she kind of we grew at the same time. And then I ended up in front of creative female entrepreneurs. So those were not actually my targets in the beginning. And I never would have thought that it would evolve that way, but it has. And so now I'm known in certain communities and I, the speaking, all of that stuff that's come, I, I wouldn't have ever thought that I would have a book and a podcast or that I would be on NBC. NBC comes to my house to interview me. Those are things that, you know, from Twitter, from a tweet on Twitter, he comes to my house from like one tweet, stuff like that. I never would have known if I didn't take a chance. And and so what happened early on was saying yes to a lot of opportunities, like a lot of yeses, walking through whatever door opened. I said yes to a lot of things early on. And then it got to a point where I, my revenue was at a point for me, what my take home was where I was like, okay, I can start saying no to things now. And then now it's basically, I said, now we're back to refining things back down. I said yes to a lot of things, opened a lot of doors have a lot of opportunities and now we're refining it back down so that can be the most impactful with those things that are revenue generating. So I think it's just a matter of like, I I would have never pictured it to go that way. I would have never pictured the opportunities that presented itself to me. But I think by taking those chances and being able to say yes to those opportunities and connecting with people and reaching out that helped my career a lot. Okay. Interesting. And, and uh, anything in, in retrospect that you like you regret or wish you'd done differently? I will say the one thing that I, I didn't think I was going to do investment management at all when I launched and now it evolved to Betterment and now I'm doing TDA with dimensional funds. And so I'd say that <laughs> if anything, I wish I would have probably started that a little bit earlier. And that for me, financial planning and investments, like for me, I I just felt like I could only take off one thing to two at a time. I kind of wish I maybe done figured that out a little bit earlier. What led you to not do AUM originally and then decide to do AUM after all? I was still working. I wasn't as comfortable like on like the sales side, to be honest. Like in general, like sales always. Like I said sales always scared me. I wasn't, and that was the part where I was like, "Is this going to work? Do I know how to sell?" Selling is like something that has to happen, and it terrified me. Selling was just like awful to me, even though I know I'm a good financial planner. The selling side, and so it wasn't until like I got a script down, and then I basically realized that when it comes to working with clients that I actually enjoy working with and, and meeting their needs, I realized I'm actually just educating them on what the services are. It's education. That sales is education. So so it wasn't until then that I felt more confident about, okay, how do I explain what I do that the investments would be able to come in? Because I felt like that was a whole other beast to tackle, especially with my the people that I work with. And I didn't feel comfortable exactly like how I would explain that yet. So I felt like it was taking on too much at that time to try and hold myself accountable to explaining it all. And I, I put a lot of that pressure on myself thinking that clients would expect me to know it all or explain it all off the bat. 
Yeah, I, I, there. Yeah, it's just one of those things of of finding your confidence for through the first few years. Like I, you know, almost every advisor I know that goes out on their own ends out dramatically raising their fees in the in the first couple of years. Like we did a benchmarking study internally at XY Planning Network, and literally a hundred percent of advisors raised their fees in their first three years of of starting their business. And I, I think so much of it just there's there's this confidence factor that's just hard until you do it and you get your first few clients and like a few people say yes and you go, oh my God, this might actually work. And and then you start to feel better and price your time and your worth a little bit more fairly and start lifting up that that fee. Exactly. I wish there was a shortcut to it, but I don't I, I don't know how to get a shortcut to it because I feel like we all just have to shortcut go through to that. Confidence. Just confidence. <laughs> you can't you can't shortcut the experience. Phase. Yeah. So as we as we come to the end, this is a, a show about success and and one of the themes that always crops up is just that success means different things to different people, uh, sometimes different things to us in, in varying stages of our own life. And so, you know, you're you're off for an amazing start for this successful business. You have, as you noted, a a very long time horizon for it. So you 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 talked a little bit about where the business can grow and some of your targets, but I'm curious just at, at your kind of individual personal level for you, Mary Beth, how do you define success? Success basically just means me being able to financially support my family and to be able to be present with my children and my husband and family basically and, and enjoy life. So it, it's the balance there. Success, you know, being able to check all the basic financial planning boxes like save for retirement and, you know, financial independence. But mostly just, you know, one of the things is when I turn 80, like how do I picture myself? Do I picture myself with a bunch of money in the bank or do I picture myself surrounded by my family? And that's one of the things for me is family experiences are really important right now. And so being successful means that I, my kids have good memories with me and my kids know that I'm present while I'm growing up. And so they're while they're growing up. So I, my thought is it's okay during this season of life to grow a little bit slower because I think there's going to be years when they're in school full time where I'm going to be able to really ramp it up as well. Well, very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us and and sharing all this path and and journey to starting a firm and starting a family and 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 surviving. I feel like that's that's step one. <laughs> is just sur- surviving through the exhaustion and the sleepless nights and all the all the wonderful things that come with uh, with little kids. Yeah, maybe reach out in like a month or so, and I'll probably want to work a lot more, depending on how crazy I'm going. <laughs> so yeah. we'll see. Yes. <laughs> thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.